1644, independence in England started to gain the upper hand at the Westminster Assembly, and in New England, tensions between deputies and magistrates, Presbyterians, and independents rose, ultimately causing the region's most intense political battle since the antinomian controversy. You're listening to Rejects and Revolutionaries with Sarah Tinsalvola, a podcast tracing the origins of America from the Tudor era to the 20th century. Before we get started, I just wanted to thank all of you who gave input on the new podcast name. It was very divided, but I think the edge went slightly toward rejects and revolutionaries. And I think that that's a bit more memorable and searchable in any way. But I did want to incorporate the whole origins thing in there. So now the full title of the podcast, as it will start to appear on your podcatchers, is Rejects and Revolutionaries, The Origins of America. And I'll gradually start moving everything in that direction. And without further ado, let's get started. In England, by 1644, the war was trending in Parliament's favor, and by June of 1644, the king had virtually no chance of victory. And that changed the dynamic within the parliamentary and Puritan movement. There were the Presbyterians, who now formed the backbone of the Peace Party, who wanted to negotiate with the king, quickly ending the war with some reforms. These people were the Earl of Essex, the Earl of Manchester, and the like. There were the independents who were now leading the war party, who wanted to push the king into complete submission, and who may or may not have already been considering deposing the king completely. Their leaders were Henry Vane and Oliver St. John. Vane had been the person to write the Solemn League and Covenant, and he had worded it in such a way that there was some wiggle room for interpretation to allow for a future religious settlement which would allow the independents some influence. It was sneaky, it was clever, and it had serious implications in future years. And as these debates continued, New Englanders grew more and more involved in them. They were noticeably favored for positions of authority, especially in the army, and the army was becoming the entity most associated with the independent movement, while Parliament leaned either Presbyterian or Erastian, which was a viewpoint that said, the church should be nothing more than an arm of the state. Around this time, Berkeley's old chaplain also went to England via New England, where he had married John Winthrop's cousin, and he had also become a leader of the congregational cause. But as the independents increased in influence, the differences between them also increased in importance. Was the independent movement, as John Cotton said, a democratic movement which was totally able to root out so-called heresy? Or was it, 
as Henry Vane and Roger Williams said, a path to freedom of conscience. Williams and Cotton debated each other, and at the same time, Hugh Peter debated the Presbyterian Nathaniel Ward. So the Independent Alliance was tenuous, perhaps fatally so, and that was never more awkwardly demonstrated than when Thomas Weld published a pamphlet written by John Winthrop entitled A Short Story of the Rise, Reign, and Ruin of the Antinomians, Familists, and Libertines that Infected the Churches of New England. Of course, Henry Vane was one of the three leading antinomians who were discussed in the pamphlet. So Henry Vane had just done more for the independent war party cause than anyone, and here was a direct and deeply personal, insulting and embarrassing attack on him by another well-respected New Englander. It was horribly timed, very stupid and embarrassing enough that Thomas Hooker said he thought the Presbyterians had tricked Shepard into publishing the document to harm the independent cause. Of course, that was just an excuse by a horrified observer. Massachusetts had kicked Vane out, and its leaders really had no desire to be allied with him, especially as that alliance became less necessary. And since John Cotton had become the internationally renowned leading voice supporting Congregationalism, it's actually a good time to talk about a unique aspect of the Congregational movement, which I forgot to mention last time. And that is millennial thought. John Cotton's influence came in large part from the fact that he was considered an expert at interpreting the book of Revelation, with few exceptions, the strongest adherents of millenary thought were Congregationalists, and New Englanders took a lead in pushing this use of scripture. Scottish Presbyterians had a millennialist outlook, but English ones did not. Most of the people, though, who ended up forming the leadership in Cromwell's government, were millennialists. So what was millennialism? Well, fundamentally, millennialism interpreted scripture to mean that there would one day be a thousand-year rule of the saints. But the important part of 17th century millennialism is that they tried to interpret history to predict and possibly even influence when that thousand years began. At its core, this was a primitive form of historiography, fitting people and events into a predefined context to try to pick out patterns and draw conclusions from them. So, the Catholic Church was the Whore of Babylon, the earliest beginnings of the Reformation, like John Wycliffe, had hearkened the new era, and the rule of Mary I was the spilling of the blood of the saints. But I reiterate that this was far from a universal opinion. So-called radicals and heretics 
by and large, didn't believe in this application of scripture. Neither Catholics, nor English Presbyterians, nor Arminians believed in it. And even so-called radicals and heretics, by and large, didn't believe in this application of scripture. The real exception here is the fifth monarchists, led by Thomas Benner. So Henry Vane didn't believe in it. Roger Williams didn't believe in it. George Fox didn't believe in it. The Earl of Essex didn't believe in it. The Earl of Manchester didn't believe in it. The Earl of Warwick didn't believe in it. But John Cotton did. John Davenport did. Hugh Peter and Oliver Cromwell did. And in that, we can see a unifying force for the future of the Puritan and parliamentary movement. And we can also see the deep, deep connections between millennial thought and New England. Virtually every millennialist in England had at least considered being a part of the New England colonization. And the idea would help shape the region's reactions to events in coming years and decades. But before we move on with these developments, let's go over to Massachusetts and discuss the deputy's plan to curtail magistrate power. In 1644 and 1645, this came in three waves, three clashes between the two groups. And the first came with a program known as the Essex Program. Deputies had been working to shift the balance of the general court since the Latour incidents. With only the best deputies elected, with a sympathetic governor and with a pre-organized legislative agenda, they hoped to become the magistrates' political equals. For their governor, they chose John Endicott, who was electable, a long-standing colony leader and on good terms with John Winthrop. He wasn't as ideologically extreme as Richard Saltonstall or John Bellingham, but at least he shared their opinions in the most extreme and important of circumstances. So he wouldn't immediately be written off as a belligerently political choice, but he could support some of the deputies' opinions in the cases which were most fundamentally important to them. And in selecting Endicott, they could push for the colony's capital to be moved to his hometown of Salem. Getting to elections, going to standing council meetings, and the logistical choice of where to store weapons were all connected to capital location, so this would immediately shift the colony's balance of power. It was a very strategic, very intelligently crafted plan, except for one thing. The magistrates could still veto anything they wanted to, and they weren't inclined to even feign sympathy to the deputies' cause. So, sure, the deputies got everyone elected who they wanted to, but the magistrates still controlled one house of the legislature, and they just vetoed everything the deputies tried to push through. And nothing the deputies did could change that. In the debates that followed, a fundamental difference of opinion was voiced. 
the magistrates said that the ultimate authority in the colony was the charter, and that everything else, from the magistrates to the deputies to the general court, only existed by virtue of the charter. But the deputies said that the general court should be the heart of the colony's authority, with the body of liberties, which had actually been voted on, acting as its legal foundation. Which was the heart of government authority? And was the heart of government authority a body of people or a document? Even accepting the magistrate's position, though, the deputies noted that there was ample precedent for letting them take an increased role in colony affairs outside of the general court. And to this, magistrates simply replied that every example the deputies mentioned was either a mistake or too trivial to be important. And furthermore, they said the deputies would undermine the doctrine of the calling and divine sanction of the magistrates and would eventually establish a mob rule. Facing an unyielding magistrate wall, the deputies made one last request. They wanted modifications to the Standing Council providing for general court oversight and limited deputy involvement exclusively in cases involving war. And to this proposition, the magistrates made a counteroffer. They would accept that concession if the deputies would relinquish any right to question or challenge magistrate authority in the future. I will note in the magistrate's defense here, because we really did jump in at a particularly anti-magistrate part of the story, that the deputies had elevated themselves from non-existence to legislative equality with the magistrates in just over a decade. So they had made concessions in the past, and they were tired of making concessions, and deputy populism had led to some pretty alarming behavior in the past. But in the deputy's defense, magistrate high-handedness had proven every bit as dangerous, and they didn't want to give up any future right to check the magistrates, who did seem pretty insistent that they could do whatever they wanted. And as constitutions went, the charter wasn't exactly ideal. It was a document sanctioning the formation of a joint stock company, or corporation, by the king, where it had been meticulously crafted, that had been to subvert royal authority, not to create the foundations of an ideal Republican government. So the deputies rejected the magistrate's offer. Instead of trying to negotiate with the magistrates, they would directly appeal to the voters. They resolved that nothing should be done on the issue of the Standing Council until the next court session in October. And the magistrates agreed, twisting the knife by noting that this meant that if an emergency situation did occur in that time, that the colony would act on it the way they always had, with the magistrates having sole control. And to this, an indignant William Hawthorne responded, You will not be obeyed. Round 1. Magistrate Victory Clash 2 began with a PR battle. The deputies recruited popular support 
and John Endicott asked the ministers to more actively support the magistrates, and John Winthrop wrote a treatise defending the magistrates, denying magistrate tyranny, denying the need for reform, and minimizing the importance of deputy influence. He then gave copies to some of the deputies, and while some agreed with it, others didn't respond. Instead, they read passages from it at the next general court session, calling it a dangerous libel of some unknown author, treating it as an anonymous tract so that Winthrop's popularity wouldn't sway people's opinions. They asked that the anonymous Winthrop be censured, but the magistrates again refused and the deputies could do nothing. The ministers then held a meeting to declare their political position as Endicott had requested, and most deputies refused to attend, rightly anticipating that they would mostly support the magistrates. But though they did, they supported the deputies on the key issues nearest and dearest to the deputies' hearts. They still allowed for the idea that the deputies should participate in the standing council They supported the deputies on the issue of predefined legal punishments, and they supported limited deputy judicial powers. Judicial powers exclusively in cases of appeal and crimes in office by high officials. This gave them the ability to monitor the standing council's activities, and if it exceeded its powers or administered arbitrary justice, they could use their judicial powers to oppose it. The deputies weren't yet on the standing council, but they had been given permission to address its abuses. So, round two, much more minor than the first, very slight deputy victory, I'd say and the deputies used their newfound authority almost immediately to challenge standing council interference in the Presbyterian town of Hingham. This will be the third and final confrontation of the episode, the Hingham Militia case, and the colony's most heated dispute since the Antinomian controversy. But just a little background first. In England, theological debate waned, and the fight between Presbyterians and independents became more political, as Presbyterians sought peace with the king while the independents favored war, and thanks to that war, continued to build in strength, culminating in the self-denying ordinance, which made the independent-controlled army, well, independent, of the Presbyterian-leaning Parliament. And as these trends occurred in England, they were mirrored in New England. There was a serious and growing undercurrent of Presbyterian opposition to the denial of communion and the extent of opposition to the king. A group of colonists petitioned the Massachusetts General Court, asking that communion policy be changed and noting that New Englanders in England were being denied communion in retaliation. But the petition was ignored. Two bills were submitted to widen the franchise, but the matter was postponed, and even in New Haven, 
One pastor began to rethink the Congregationalist baptism policy, saying it would cause churches to die out within a couple generations. And he moved his congregation to Long Island to live under Dutch jurisdiction and administer baptism freely. And his opposition to the Congregationalists grew, so did enforcement of the status quo, and the region began a new crackdown on so-called heretics. Massachusetts banned Anabaptism, and New Haven excommunicated its first lady, Anne Eaton, for embracing Anabaptist views. And to prevent any Presbyterian expressions of a desire to end the war with the king, they passed a law which forbade anyone from saying anything which might be construed to support the king. And after passing it, they brought the commander of the Watertown militia before the general court to answer accusations that he had, the year before, quote, in private conference, questioned the lawfulness of the Parliament's proceeding in England. He replied that he did indeed have some scruples, but that the court had no right to bring him in for a year-old private conversation. The court pushed the matter until he relented. By some accounts, he fully recanted his previous position and said that he would fight for Parliament if he were in England and by others he just said that he would defend Massachusetts against the actions of the king or anyone who acted against the colony. Regardless, he submitted and was allowed to go, but only after a thorough interrogation by the court. So that forms the background of what came next. Hingham was one of the very few Presbyterian towns in Massachusetts, and its pastor, Peter Hobart, was one of the colony's respected Presbyterian leaders. Its militia was led by a man named Anthony Eames, who, though a relative newcomer, had always gotten along well with the congregation and had always been well-respected in the town. In 1645, Eames was elected as the company commander of the Hingham Militia Band for Life, and his name was sent to the Standing Council for approval. But after his election, Eames signed his name to a petition complaining about Hobart's Presbyterian Church, and the fact that the congregation didn't have a vote in that church, and asking that the general court intervene. This changed the town's opinion of their militia leader. In a heavily Presbyterian town, he was not only trying to change the congregation, but appealing to the general court to do so. If that became the precedent, Presbyterianism could not survive in Massachusetts. The petition accomplished nothing except to make Eames extremely unpopular in his adopted town, so the Hingham militia voted to change their nomination and instead elected Bozoan Allen, a man who wasn't necessarily as experienced as Eames, but who was a dedicated Presbyterian. The Standing Council hadn't yet approved Eames, so the militia sent them a message saying that they had changed their mind they had voted, and in fact, they wanted Allen to be their militia leader. Don't bother approving Eames. Approve Allen instead, 
please, and thank you. Now, that seems pretty reasonable, but we wouldn't be talking about it today if it had gone smoothly. The Standing Council refused to consider Allen's nomination. They told Hingham to keep Eames. So to support the man who had protested Hingham's lack of democratic influence, the Standing Council had refused to allow the town to democratically choose a civil leader. And the irony wasn't lost on Richard Bellingham, one of the two most pro-democratic, pro-deputy magistrates. After the meeting, Bellingham took Eames aside and told him that it would probably be best for everyone if he just went home and honorably laid down his place, knowing how the town had voted. The Hingham militia clerk was Peter Hobart's brother, Joshua, and after the standing council's decision, he called the meeting to report it. But he said that Bellingham, who was a magistrate and therefore a person in authority, had advised Eames to resign and that Eames should follow that advice. But Eames refused. And at this point, even people who supported Eames before started switching to support Allen in protest of the Standing Council's interference in local affairs. And at this point, even people who had initially supported Eames switched to supporting Allen in protest of the Standing Council's interference in local affairs. The next day, Joshua Hobart ordered a militia drill session, but he didn't tell Eames about it. So when the militia assembled, Eames was missing and Allen took command. When Eames found out, he rushed to the field faced his troops, and gave a command, but not one person responded. Eames repeated his command, and Hobart demanded that he show some order from an authority which gave him the right to train. Eames cited the Standing Council's recent decision, and Hobart demanded a written order, but Eames refused to show it. Hobart said that he had heard a magistrate advise him to resign, so he was not the legitimate commander, and Eames denied that this had ever happened. The militia vocally agreed with Hobart, and someone shouted that even if three to four magistrates had supported Eames, the Standing Council had no authority to overrule the militia's vote. And another, somewhat more dramatically, said he was willing to die for the right to pick his own officers. Hobart then called for an immediate vote of all present Hingham citizens to decide whether they supported the militia or the standing council, and the vote favored Allen and the militia. Hobart called Allen to assume his rightful post, and Allen agreed, but only after a new vote of the militia itself confirmed its continued support of him. When the vote went Allen's way, Eames stormed off the field, declaring that he would never lead the Hingham militia again. The third of militia members who had voted for him also followed him off the field. The next Sunday, the Hobarts confronted Eames about his behavior and accused him of lying when he had denied that authority had advised him to lay down his position. 
Eames again denied that it had happened, and witnesses were called to testify. John Folsom said that he had heard both Dudley and Winthrop denying that they had given Eames command of the militia, and denying that they had any right to do so. That was not true. Hobart testified about Bellingham's advice, and that was true. And Bellingham was a person in authority, so by perhaps tenuous extension, authority had told him to resign, and Eames had lied on the field. John Tower corroborated Hobart's story. Pastor Hobart then called on Eames to repent of his sins, and when he refused, the hot-tempered Hobart almost excommunicated him, but he was stopped by several church members who interceded and asked that no further action be taken until tempers cooled. A few days later, Eames appealed to the Standing Council, who then asked several elders from nearby churches to intervene to smooth the situation, to prevent Eames's excommunication, and to prevent a schism in the church. But a schism there would be, and outside interference only made the townspeople angrier. So Eames and twelve of his supporters stood up in front of the congregation and dramatically left the church. And then Eames went to the standing council and asked them to intervene directly. And they did. They summoned five Hingham leaders, including Joshua Thomas and Edmund Hobart, and Peter Hobart went too. In Boston, Peter Hobart launched into an impassioned and increasingly angry tirade, complaining that his brothers were treated like criminals for doing nothing wrong. The council ultimately stopped him, saying that the only thing preventing them from arresting him for contempt was their respect for the cloth. They ordered the five to appear at the next court of assistance, and then they summoned five of the men who had testified against Eames in the Hingham Church. Instead of obeying the summons, though, these five went to Winthrop's home with no warning and demanded an explanation of the charges against them and to know the names of their accusers. Winthrop couldn't explain the former and wouldn't give the latter. He just ordered them to give bond for their appearance before the court, and they refused. So the next time he saw them, he had them arrested. The 1645 election again favored the deputies. The day after the election, Hingham sent a petition signed by 81 people to the deputies, hearkening to deputy ideals like local leadership and local elected power and asking that the general court find that the standing council's actions had been wrong. The deputies eagerly entertained the petition, and the magistrates begrudgingly agreed. But before they would entertain the petition, the magistrates demanded concrete charges against a named individual. And Hobart and Folsom named Winthrop as the individual who had done the most wrong. The magistrates then demanded 
that criminal charges be brought against Winthrop, and the deputies agreed. But this was a trap. It prevented the deputies from building their case on popular ideological arguments and instead forced them to find something that Winthrop had done criminally wrong to successfully prove their accusation and to impeach the most popular man in the colony. That was a very different dynamic indeed, and one which put popular sentiment on the side of Winthrop and by extension the magistrates. So the stage was set for the showdown to end all showdowns. The Presbyterians, the deputies, local power and popular authority against the Congregationalists, the magistrates, and central authority. The trial, the criminal trial, of John Winthrop. In June 1645, the trial began. The Boston Meeting House was the most packed it had been since the downfall of Henry Vane and Anne Hutchinson. Hobart and Allen listed Winthrop's supposedly illegal actions, like imprisoning people for refusing to post bond for witnessing on a church matter, and Winthrop gave a predictably brilliant defense. He noted that nothing he had done had actually been illegal, and he said that if they condemned him, they condemned all judges, and in doing so, invited chaos. At this point, the trial devolved into a bitter argument. Deputies and magistrates argued publicly for two days, unable to even agree on what the trial was about, and then they argued for even longer in private, with both sides voicing every little thing that had been bothering them over the course of years. The magistrates, though, out-debated the deputies, and eventually withdrew to discuss the case on their own. And then, the court came together, as a whole, yet again. And when they did, the magistrates continued out-debating the deputies. By this point, the question had become whether Hingham was guilty of mutiny. If they were, Winthrop's actions were not only justified but necessary, and if they weren't, then maybe he was guilty. But gradually, the magistrates chipped away at the deputies' arguments and forced them to concede that Hingham had committed mutiny. Then, they accused the town's leaders of lying about what Winthrop had said, and to prove it, they brought Folsom forward and asked him to repeat his story under oath. But Folsom refused yet again supporting the magistrates. At this point, the magistrates could sense complete victory. They had gotten the deputies to overplay their hand, diverted the issues to those where they were the strongest, and chipped away at the deputies' arguments. This trial had lasted for seven weeks, and now they were entering the final stretch. The magistrates wanted Winthrop exonerated, and the petitioners censured. The deputies said they didn't think that people should be censured for petitioning, so the magistrates asked the deputies to present the case as they saw it. If they were going to vote down the magistrate proposal, 
let's hear the alternative. And the deputies said that Bellingham had advised Eames to resign, and that Eames had acted provocatively when he refused to show his orders to the company, and that the standing council had exceeded its authority, and that it shouldn't have the powers it had anyway. There was no reason for the standing council to confirm officers when the general court was in session. The magistrates rebutted each point, and then suggested that the petitioners, as part of their punishment, be forced to pay the costs of the prolonged general court session. And that put the deputies in a difficult situation. The problem was, someone was going to have to pay those fees. If the deputies refused to make the petitioners pay the fees, then they would have to get their own constituents to pay them. They either had to agree that the petitioners were wrong, or go home and ask their constituents for money that could have been paid by other people to fight a losing court case. So the deputies agreed but they asked that the fines be lowered and insisted on fining Eames too, because according to the magistrate's triumphant version of events, Eames had resigned his post by walking off the training field. And the magistrates refused. They said they would allow for a mild admonishment, but no punishment. And they would only lower the fines if Winthrop was pronounced completely innocent and the petitioners forced to publicly apologize to him. And the magistrate said that if the deputies couldn't agree to this, they would call in the ministers and have them decide, knowing that the ministers would likely give them an even worse deal. So completely defeated, the deputies agreed. Fines were set between 4 and 20 pounds per mutineer, Half a pound per petitioner, and John Tower was forced to serve out his remaining prison time. At the next court session, everything was formalized, and immediately after Winthrop returned to the magistrate's bench, he stood and gave a speech on liberty which became famous. In the context of the time, it wasn't just an ideological speech, it was a political one, it was a complete denial of everything the deputies had believed, and a total defense of magisterial authority, and without naming them personally, a statement that what the deputies wanted would lead to wickedness and anarchy. There is a twofold liberty, Winthrop said. Natural, I mean, as our nature is now corrupt, and civil or federal. The first is common to men with beasts and other creatures. By this, man, as he stands in relation to man, simply hath liberty to do what he lists. It is a liberty to do evil as well as to good. This liberty is incompatible and inconsistent with authority, and cannot endure the least restraint of the most just authority. The exercise and maintaining of this liberty 
makes men grow more evil, and in time to be worse than brute beasts. That is the great enemy of truth and peace, that wild beast which all ordinances of God are bent against, to restrain and subdue it. The other kind of liberty I call civil or federal. It may also be termed moral, in reference to the covenant between God and man, and the moral law and the public covenants and constitutions among men themselves. This liberty is the proper end and object of authority, and cannot subsist without it, and it is a liberty to that only which is good and just and honest. This liberty you are to stand for, with the hazard not only of your goods, but of your lives if need be. For the deputies, the conflict was over for the time being. Winthrop had defined liberty in New England, and the definition did not include their ideas. But for Peter Hobart, it wasn't. And actually, his next actions not only tie into the war itself, but really cast the whole event in an intriguingly different light. The next January, when the marshal went to collect the fines, Hobart refused to pay, saying that the demand wasn't legal because it wasn't sent in the king's name, and that he had been sworn to the crown of England. He said that Massachusetts Bay was no more than a corporation in England, and that as such, it didn't have the right to execute people or, in fact, to do a lot of the things that it had done. And furthermore, it wasn't appropriate to fine people for petitioning. Hobart said that even if he had the money, they had no right to demand it, so he refused to pay. It does seem that his fine was paid by his congregation, but for his statements, and we truly have to leave the matter here for now, he was again brought before the general court, this time for sedition. He was fined 20 pounds and bound 40 for good behavior and ordered to appear at the next quarter court. And yet again, even in the face of such extreme statements, Bellingham and Broad Street supported Hobart. Now, there were a lot of other things going on at this time. New Haven continued to clash with New Netherland and New Sweden, and Plymouth worked to move to Nowset, and Saybrook sold itself to Connecticut, and New Haven considered getting a charter to legalize its existence, but when its agent was lost at sea, it didn't bother sending another. And New Haven also struck the king's name from the Oath of Allegiance. And in Rhode Island, Coddington, who was trying to take control, asked that Rhode Island be allowed to join the United Colonies, but the request was refused unless he submitted to either Plymouth or Massachusetts government. And there was another little dramatic event which happened around this time, but I'll discuss that in another episode. As we leave New England, and specifically Massachusetts, at the end of the First English Civil War, 
we leave a colony whose deputies were defeated, whose Presbyterians were disgruntled, and whose congregational magisterial elite had consolidated authority with a very, very specific interpretation of liberty. Every colony had increased its crackdowns on heresy, and the region's prestige in England had risen with the victory of the independent movement there. But next week, we'll leave New England for the most part, and see how the years of 1644 and 1645 played out elsewhere in English America. 